Amen. Isn't it hard to really put that into practice to say, Lord, in all things I will give thanks. That's what we're called to do. Part of the difficult nature of giving thanks in all things is we often don't see how God's working. But I can reassure, reassure you of this. You can thank Him in every circumstance because His protection and His provision will be enough. It's one of the common themes throughout the book of Revelation. God's people will encounter difficult times. Count on it. But in the midst of it, God will provide exactly what we need. God will protect. Now we know that the church will endure suffering, even martyrdom. So the question is, how will God protect if that protection is not physical? Part of the answer is found in the text before us today, and that is Revelation chapter 12. Tony, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I left my Bible down there, and I may need it. <laughs> Thank you. Revelation chapter 12. This chapter gives us a glimpse behind the scenes. Behind the scenes of what's going on in this earthly reality. And it's quite a picture. Something that few, probably other than John, have really ever witnessed. I couldn't help when I was reading this to think back to the original Dream Team, 1992 in Barcelona. Many consider that that team, the first time NBA players played in the Olympics, the greatest sports team ever assembled. Think about how great they were. Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, and the list goes on and on. By comparison, this year's team that won the gold medal won their games by an average of 22 points. The original Dream Team won by an average of 44 points. None of the games were close. The only reason to watch was to see the amazement on the opposing player's face when they realized who they were playing against. The games weren't much, but there was one game that if you love basketball, you would have loved to have seen. It happened before the Olympics, about three weeks before the game started. Chuck Daly was concerned that his team may be a little lethargic, so on a hot summer's day in a very humid gym, he called his 12 players together. After they were gathered at center court, he began dividing them into two squads, the blue squad and the white squad. And then he looked up in the stands and through his assistants, ordered every reporter, every camera out of the building. Except for one friend of his that had an old VHS camera on his shoulder. And then he looked at his team and he said, today, everything you've got now. The few coaches that witnessed it in that VHS tape say it was the greatest game nobody ever saw. Michael Jordan being guarded by Magic Johnson playing all out. Patrick Ewing and David Robinson in the post. If you're a basketball player, you're starting to salivate right now. The greatest game. And nobody saw it. It happened behind the scenes. 
In many ways, that's a picture of what goes on with us. We, you and I are very aware of the reality around us, the suffering, the pain, and the hurt. But what we are not aware of are the things that are happening behind the scenes that are even more real than the things we encounter now. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when he wrote these words, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The person you think is the problem is not really the problem. That's not the enemy. Who's the enemy? But we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the real battle. That's the conflict going on that we don't see. Now the question is, how in the world can you and I wrestle against such things? I mean, who are we to stand against the, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers? And the truth is, you and I can't. And the good news is, all we have to do is stand firm and trust the victory that's already been won by Christ. That victory is described in Romans, Romans in Revelation chapter 12. These 17 verses really divide into three parts. And I want to center on our nemesis in this, the dragon. What we will see in verses 1 through 6 is the design of the dragon, what he's after. I want you to understand our enemy. Verses 1 through 6 is about the design of the dragon. In verses 7 through 12, we get to witness something. We get to witness the dragon being defamed. We get to see him lose his bot. And then in verses 13 through 17, we get a glimpse of the desperation of this wounded dragon. So follow with me as I read verses 1 through 17 of Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short." 
And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. In this vision, this great sign that John sees, we are introduced to exactly what the dragon wants to do. Verses 1 through 6 lay out the design of our enemy, and verses 13 through 17 emphasize exactly what that plan is. This is what our enemy is after. Our enemy desires to destroy the Messiah. And since he has failed in destroying the Messiah, he wants to destroy the people of God in order to deface the glory of God. That's what he's after. Church, you and I are simply pawns in his game where he wants to strike at the glory of God. And since he failed to destroy the Messiah, now he comes after the church in order to tempt, test, and to cause the church to stumble. And if he could, even destroyed to strike at the glory of God Almighty. Verse 1 tells us there was a great sign that appeared in heaven. Verse 3 tells us that another sign appeared. Now this language is not unusual for John. Throughout his gospel, John continually comes back to the idea of a sign. Seven times in his gospel, he speaks of a sign. Now, a sign points to a greater reality so that those who recognize the sign will believe in that reality. So these signs are pointing us to a greater reality. And this reality is not just spiritual warfare. These signs are given so that you and I will know that God has provided exactly what we need and that His protection in the Spirit is secure so that we do not have to fear in any way. Now these signs are represented in the key players of this narrative. Verse 3, we are introduced to the dragon and it's clear who the dragon is. Verse 9 removes any doubt. This great dragon that is thrown down is the ancient serpent. The image of the dragon is an Old Testament image, an archetype of that which causes chaos and devours and evil. And we are clear that this serpent, this dragon, is the devil, Satan, who is the deceiver of the whole world. In verse 5, we are introduced to the male child. And it's clear from the description that the male child is Jesus. The language there is in fulfillment of Psalm 2, verses 5 through 7, where it speaks of the one who will rule the world with an iron rod. So clearly this is Jesus, the Messiah, who is born. In verse 17, we are introduced to offspring of the woman. It becomes clear that the offspring of the woman is the church because the offspring are described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, which is the church. But the challenge is this, identifying the woman. Who is this woman that gives birth? Now tonight in our Bible study, we're going to lay out the different options and work through them. But this morning, due to time, I want to give you my, my understanding of who she is. I think it is best to see her as the people of God 
from ancient Israel until now. She is the people of God from ancient Israel until now. The description given in verses 1 through 6 fits that of Israel. We'll see in just a moment the description in verse 1 of the sun and the moon under her feet and the crown of 12 stars. Verse 5 makes it clear that it is Israel that gives birth to the Messiah. The Messiah came from the Jewish people. But there seems to be a change in meaning. Because we find that the woman, after the Messiah is taken up into heaven, that this woman has other offspring, and these offspring are Christians. Christians who didn't just come from the Jewish faith. So I think that what is being represented in the woman is this changing metaphor, this changing image that shows the continuity between Israel and the church that is, is summed up in Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel. Matthew in his gospel goes to great pains to show that wherever Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. That Jesus fulfills who Israel is to be. He fulfills the righteousness of Israel. And it uses the language of Paul in Romans 9 through 11 where the church is grafted into. Not replacing, but grafted into. The language in verse 1 of the sun, the moon, and the stars harkens back to Genesis 37 where Joseph had a dream. And in this dream, he saw the sun and the moon bowing before him. And we find out that the sun and the moon were his father and his mother. The stars were his brothers. Those images came to be associated with Israel. Now in verse 2, we find out that she is pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Israel is often pictured in the Old Testament as a woman. And at times, she is pictured in a, as a woman getting ready to give birth. I think one of the key references that could be in mind here is from Micah chapter 4, verse 10. Micah says, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion. That's Israel. Like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemy. So he says, you're going to cry like a woman in pain getting ready to give birth. Why? You're going into captivity. But God says, I'm going to rescue you. So how will this rescue come? God doesn't leave them there. He fulfills his word. Look up on the screen. You'll see Micah chapter 5. This is a passage we usually don't read until Christmas. But it has bearing upon the issue now. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now look at verse 3. How are they going to be redeemed? Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. It is through a woman giving birth, the, the Messiah being born, that God will redeem his people. So as Israel groans like they are in childbirth going into captivity, they will be delivered by the birth of a child. And that's why we are told that this child is born. But notice that the birth announcement introduces us to the dragon. Now this dragon is a sign, not a great sign. Notice, the woman is a great sign, but in verse 3, this is just another sign that appears in heaven. This great red dragon. Now why is there the distinction? Because everything about our enemy is simply an imitation and a fraud. He is nothing but a wannabe. This dragon is Satan. And notice the description of him. 
He has seven heads, ten horns, and on his head, seven diadems. He wants to give the appearance of power and the appearance of ruling, but he is simply a cheap imitation of power and authority. He is not the real thing, but his design is very real. Verse 4, we see a, a brief description, I believe, of his expulsion from heaven as recorded in Isaiah and Ezekiel. His tail, showing the immensity of the evil one, sweeps down a third of the stars and casts them to earth. But notice what he desires to do. This dragon stands before the woman who is about to give birth. So that when the child is born, he can devour it. The dragon waits to kill the child. You must understand the background behind this, the big story. To understand why the devil wants to destroy the child, we have to go back to the garden. Genesis chapter 3. This verse is known as the first gospel. God is getting ready to remove Adam and Eve from the garden where they have sinned and, and are being removed because of their rebellion. Now he speaks to Satan. And look what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The one who comes from the woman will bruise your head. It will, he will crush your head. He will kill you, even though you bruise his heel. So Satan knows, because he knows the Scripture better than you or I. Satan is a great theologian. He knows that the offspring of this woman, as predicted in Genesis 3, will kill him. So what does he want to do? He wants to kill this offspring before the offspring has a chance to do him harm. I think you see that in the death of Abel. Cain tempts, is tempted by Satan so that he kills Abel. You see the hand of the evil one when Pharaoh orders the children of Egypt, of Israel, to be thrown into the Nile lest they rise up and overtake him. You see this in the Old Testament where the sin of Israel becomes so great that they take their children and sacrifice them to false gods. And you see it in the Gospel of Matthew when Herod gets word that the Messiah is born. What does he do? He orders all children under the age of two to be killed. Every effort there is an effort by the devil to kill this offspring. Satan hates children, and this is why. But notice all of his efforts failed. He never succeeded. Look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is language from Psalm 2. You'll see it up on the screen. Verses 7 through 9. God says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, verse 5 tells us that the Messiah is born. Satan does not devour him. But notice that the ministry of the Messiah is condensed. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The ministry of Jesus is compressed here. Think like a zip file on your, on your, your hard drive. It's compressed to make the point that Satan failed, that the Messiah completed his ministry and has been re resurrected and ascended up to the cross, that the devil, the ugly dragon, was defeated by the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. The devil has been defanged. And this defanging of the dragon 
is described in verses 7 through 12. Now notice, the woman flees into the wilderness. She is uh, to a place prepared by God. But now war arises in heaven. This war, I think, models what is taking place in heaven, or it models what is taking place on earth in heaven. Because we see this battle taking place. Here we see the ramifications of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. The curtain is pulled back so that while we are aware of what is happening on earth, now we glimpse what is happening in heaven as Satan tries to rise up against God we see according to verse 7 Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back it really wasn't much of a battle it was a rout to be honest so why is Michael leading the angels we recognize Michael from the Old Testament specifically the book of Daniel Michael is introduced there as an angel associated as one who comes to the aid of the people of God he responds to the prayers of Daniel we find he's a warrior angel he says he was held up by the powers that, that reside over Persia and Greece, apparently the demonic powers. And he is portrayed as a warrior. And the point is this, that what Jesus was accomplishing upon earth in his death and resurrection, Michael accomplished in heaven with his angels against the devil and his angels. But the outcome was never in doubt. Look at verse 8. He, that is the dragon, was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The deceiver of the whole world was thrown down to earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Now here's the question I want us to deal with. If according to Isaiah and Ezekiel, as well as back up in verse 4, Satan was removed from heaven at some point prior to Adam and Eve, what's being referred to here? If he was thrown down prior, then what does it mention him being in heaven now? Well, verse 10 answers this question. This loud voice proclaims, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. So I think this is referring once again to what happens at the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. Why is this th come? Because the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan is cast out of heaven, but apparently in the Old Testament, he still has access to heaven to do one thing, accuse the people of God and God himself. When he says that he was accusing, it's one who attributes guilt and shame to another person. It has a legal emphasis with it. It's like filling out a legal charge to say, you don't have the right to do that. You see examples of this in the Old Testament. Job chapter 1. Satan appears before God. And you know how he accuses Job and he accuses God? He says, God, Job's faithful because you're playing favorites. You're not fair, God. You, you're, you're treating Job with kid gloves. You take those off and see if Job still worships you. He is accusing God of being unfair. You see it even more clearly in the prophet Zechariah up on the screen. Excuse me, chapter 3. Zechariah has this vision where he has showed Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. There's a word play here. Satan literally means accuser. So what's the accuser doing? He's accusing. He's giving this legal brief saying, you're guilty. 
And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. Verse 3 reveals the basis for Satan's accusation. God, how can this man who is sinful and impure stand in your presence? How can you tolerate that, God? You're supposed to be holy. The answer comes in verses 4 and 5. Next, the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Zechariah sees Joshua, who is sinful, made clean before God. So the accusation is this. God, how can you allow a sinner in your presence? Lord, if you are really holy, how can you tolerate sin? So there's this accusation before God. Lord, if you are holy, how do you tolerate sin? How can those sinful people call out to you? I believe that's why Jesus said in John 12, 31, when he was getting ready to go to the cross, and look closely at these words. Now, and he's referring to the moment of his death, is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now the ruler of this world Satan. Which begs the question, cast out of where? I think it has to be heaven permanently. No more access. No more basis for accusations. And Jesus is saying at the cross, any accusations that the devil makes against God or the believer is foundationless. There's no foundation to it. Why? Look up on the screen at Romans 3, 25 through 26, that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation that by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So now, if Satan tries to accuse God of being unjust, the cross says that God is perfectly just because the punishment for sin was rendered. If Satan accuses God of ignoring sin, the cross says that sin is not ignored, it is punished. If Satan accuses God of not being holy, the cross says that God is holy enough to call for the payment of sin. If Satan says, but God, I thought you were merciful, the cross says, God is merciful in that he is the just one and the justifier. So Satan no longer has access to make any accusation before God. That is reason to applaud. None. Oh, but church, I'm glad you applauded with your hands up because you better have them up ready to fight. Because look where he ended up. He was thrown down to the earth. He's not done. He's been defanged, but he still bites. Can't accuse God anymore. Can't accuse in the presence of God, but he can sure work here. You know, when I read this, I, I thought of this image of the defanged dragon, and I had to laugh because I went back to a memory of my childhood. We were leaving my Mamaw Walker's house, and Papa Walker sat under a big oak tree under the chair where he would just sit and pass the day. And we were walking to leave, and he went, Imogene, that was my mama, Imogene, give me a piece of gum. And she said, but Daddy, you don't have any teeth. He said, it don't matter. I'll gum it. Just give me a piece. That's Satan. His bite has no teeth, but he still bites. He bites by accusing. 
Now look at what happens in verses 13 through 17 quickly. He goes after the woman, and this is where I think there's a change now, where the woman begins to represent the people of God. But God prepares wings. Now, the language of wings of the great eagles from Exodus. God says, I delivered you on the wings of an eagle. But notice where, where the woman, the people of God, end up. The wilderness. But it's a place where she's to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. That refers to that time of persecution. So she is nursed. The wilderness is a place of trial and provision. It's a place of testing as well as knowing that God is sufficient in all things. And you get an example of the, the sufficiency of God in verses 15 through 16 where the, it's like the serpent tries to drown the woman, but God provides and the earth opens up and swallows the water. So the dragon, furious with the woman, makes war on the rest of her saints. So what do we do in this combat? We have a defanged dragon who still bites comes after you. He comes after you to strike at the glory of God. He can't kill the Messiah, but he can come after the church. So church, here are three things on how you can defeat the dragon. Now he's already defeated, so you're fighting a wounded animal. First is this, look at verse 11. They, our brothers and sisters, have conquered, that is the word overcome, knocked in the Greek. They have knocked him by the blood of the Lamb. First is this, know your victory over the accusations of the evil one when he tells you you are horrible you're a sinner you're no good how could God love you you overcome him not by your own righteousness not by your own goodness because we have none but by the blood of the Lamb of God slain on the cross you overcome him by the righteousness of Jesus you come back and you say Satan you're right I am a sinner Satan you're right I don't love like I ought to but Satan you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins so that by faith his righteousness is transferred to me so I come against you in the name of Jesus Christ my Savior Horatio Spafford caught it well in the words of that great hymn where he said my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part not in part what would it be, believer, for you to stand in front of God with only part of your sin justified, with only part of your sin removed? We would be hopeless, but our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, so I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, it is well with my soul. That's the glorious hope. We stand firm on the blood of Jesus. And the second thing we must do is found in verse 11 also, by the word of their testimony public testimony about Jesus. This is the confession of our faith in Christ and His cross, resurrection, ascension, and what He has accomplished. We confess publicly that we are saved by grace through faith. That there's no condemnation, no charge that can be laid against the elect. So we confess publicly knowing that it is God's grace that has saved us. That public confession is crucial, especially when persecution increases and the temptation to play it safe becomes that much more attractive. Stand and confess. Number three, take up your cross and lay down your life. How do you overcome the defanged dragon? Look at verse 11. They loved not their lives even unto death. Hold loosely to the things of this world. 
grab the cross of Christ and know that if it costs everything, your victory is secure. We need to have the attitude of the Apostle Paul in Philippians when he was in jail, busted. Man had a record as long as, as our arms for preaching the gospel. They said, Paul, we finally had it with you. We're going to kill you. You know what Paul said? Oh, it's good to die as game. Okay, Paul, death doesn't scare you. We're going to let you live. That's all right. To live is Christ. I'm covered either way. That's the attitude we've got to have. To die is gain. To live is Jesus. Because he's our victory. Do you know that victory today? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. Do you know that victory today? I'm going to ask Michael and Nathan to join me here at the front. If you do not know that victory, if you don't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and the language I've used today of being justified is foreign to you, I want to invite you to come when we begin to sing. Simply take Michael or Nathan by the hand and say, I don't understand. Would you explain to me what Pastor Mark was talking about? We'll be glad to. There's no We just want to try to answer our questions to explain the victory we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you come and ask that question, what will happen is they will walk out to you to one of the Sunday school rooms near here where uninterrupted they can answer questions and explain what it means to follow Jesus because that's the only hope. That's the only hope. What we're going to see later is that those who die without faith, faith in Christ face the same judgment as the dragon because you align yourself with rebellion against God. So if you need to come today, please do. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and after this prayer, we will stand and begin to sing. And when we sing, that's your invitation to come. Father, thank you for the glorious victory we have through Christ. Help us, Father, to live in that victory, live by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, not holding on to the things of this world, but trusting you. Grant it, Lord Jesus, I pray, in the name of our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together. And if you need to come, come without delay. We won't, won't draw this out, so please come.